did the podcast. It's the podcast. Is that what you said? Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies, a celebration of the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Today we are continuing our discussion of Aristotle's On the Soul, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 3. This is a dense and a difficult text, where a lot of deep insights are packed into Aristotle's short arguments. Our conversations are correspondingly slow and careful. But stick with us and you'll be rewarded with a sense of Aristotle's surprisingly fresh way of looking at motion, life, and the world of the senses, which is neither material nor spiritual, but something of a third way that avoids the paradoxes of those two extremes. To see a reading list, or to contact us, please visit our website at keytoallmythologies.com. Now here is Elijah with the opening question. Last week, we read the first three chapters of part one of On the Soul. And then for this week, we read the next two chapters. Um, and near the end of book one, Aristotle states one of his conclusions. He says at 408b30, so it is clear from these things that the soul is not the sort of thing that can be moved. And he seems to have spent a lot of time the idea that the primary purpose of the soul seems to be sort of the main opinion of the thinkers that came before Aristotle. He spends a lot of time addressing the arguments that characterize the soul mainly as something that moves the body. And at the point that I just read, he's pretty sure that he has done that. It seems like he's, he seems that he's satisfied with his arguments. But I was hoping that we could work through for ourselves. How is it that Aristotle can come to the conclusion that the soul is not the sort of thing that can be moved? So we should say probably first what motion means for him, the way that he's using it here. He says that all motion is four aspects, right? Of there are four kinds. Change of place. So yeah, four oh six a ten and onward. It says, and since motion is of four sorts: change of place, alteration, wasting away, and growing. It is with one or more than one of all these that the soul would be moved. And we go down a few lines. But if the thinghood of the soul is to move itself, then being in motion would belong to it not incidentally, as it does to what is white or three feet long. For these are also in motion, but incidentally, since that to which they belong, the body. So I think he's thinking of like a human leg here, mm-hmm. is in motion. And for this reason, there is no place belonging to these attributes but there would be one belonging to the soul if indeed it shares in motion by its nature. So in arguing that the soul is not the kind of thing that can be moved, he's arguing that the soul does not have a place, right? In the way that the human leg has a place or a human body has a place. Oh, (laughs) well, I think, say more about what you mean by that, Adam. I'm not sure I I follow. Well, my understanding of the counter arguments he's making against Democritus and Empedocles, Plato, is that they all are still thinking of the soul as having some kind of physical existence, right? And that's where they get tied up in the various absurdities that Aristotle lays out. And he wants to say that the soul cannot have a place yes. in, in that way. I was going to say, it seems like one of the things that we're kind of missing or like when you talk about is I do think he says outright, the soul can be moved incidentally Mm -hmm. and not in its being. And I think that's going to be a pretty key element to this. So I think that a soul can be incidentally in a place, but it has no, it has no, it says nothing of the soul, what place it is in, which is, Mm -hmm perhaps different than the soul can't be in a place at all well it can't do any of the four types of movement right so it doesn't can i can i i was thinking about those can i jump in real quick yeah so if we think about the four types of movement decay or growth Mm. those two i think are the easiest because because the soul aristotle seems to want to say because the soul is non-corporeal right? It pre-exists the body, it exists after the body. So we wouldn't say that soul 
a soul or soul generally decays or grows because it's not the it's not a corruptible thing in the way the body's a corruptible thing. Does that seem good so far, at least tentatively? So it's two of the four types of movement. And then we talk about change of place. And I think Greg is so like if a plant has soul, right? Vegetative soul, right? And I pick up that plant and I move the plant from the table to another table or something, that the plant is moved incidentally, right? And the soul is somehow the living, the soul is somehow contained within the living thing. And the, the question is, in what way is it in the same place? But it's not, and what I was sort of thinking of, it's like, if we think of like a Christmas carol or something, um, there's this idea that like the spirit of Marley, right? And is like basically the same thing as the body of Marley. It's just like transparent, right? And the sort of the soul, the soul sort of steps out of the body. That's kind of the, modern superstitious understanding of the soul which i actually think you can find in virgil and i think it's probably also indebted to christianity in some ways and i think he wants to say that because he says so this is the beginning of chapter 5 409b for if the soul is present in the whole of the perceiving body then necessarily there are two bodies in the same place if the soul is some sort of body so the soul somehow is in the same place as the body that it animates but it's not a body so then the question is, in what sense then does it move if it's not a body? But it is still can be moved within a body in the same way a sailor can be moved within a ship. So those are three of the types of movement. And then the fourth one is alteration. And I think Aristotle says, this is where I'm getting confused. Aristotle says, it seems the soul can alter in the sense of it can become angry or sad or depressed or whatever. No, 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 no. He says specifically no. that it cannot do that. So that's, the one be... I, that's the one I don't yeah. understand. So I guess... The, the, that the soul, sorry, that was a lot of talking on my part, that the soul can neither decay or grow make perfect sense to me based on his premises. How the soul doesn't change due to emotion and then how does it, and then how it doesn't move place are the two that I think we need to work out. So let's talk about, I, this is a little bit cheating, but I'm gonna rely on the physics for a little bit. I think for Aristotle, all motion's relative. So for instance, I think the stars, have a proper motion that is like part of their thisness or their being is to have a motion and it's the direction across the sky within the you know astral sphere likewise fire has a motion it's upwards earth has a motion it's downwards but i think for aristotle soul has no inherent motion it doesn't have that kind of that kind of natural property according to it and therefore if it is moved it is only moved incidentally so it's not according to it being soul that it's moved it's according to it being a body it is moved and i think that's why he says the soul is not moved because it doesn't belong to the soul to be moved not that a soul can't change place because there's nothing in the universe that can't change place because he doesn't have an idea of absolute space only relative space so if something can move away from it and the whole universe can move away from it then it could be moved mm, can you connect that to what we were saying about the four types of motion, the soul. I was just working through the place one because I feel like that's the first hangout. Yeah. So souls don't move in themselves. They have no motion. They don't, they don't act upon themselves. They have no change in place because oh, they don't, right they don't do that. In the same right way, he uses the analogy of like the, the sailor on the ship. And a sailor can go across the sea and be totally still, right? Mm -hmm. It's sitting inside the ship. And I think that's how he thinks the soul is within the plant or the body or whatever. The color analogy is a really good one, right? Is the white in, in a cup moving? No, the cup's moving, not the white in the cup is moving. Yeah, but also he, so at the end of chapter three, he uses this, uh, this image where he says, for well, each body seems to have its own proper look and form they talk as if one, so these are the philosophers he's responding to, they talk as if one were to say that carpentry is transmigrated into flutes, but the art has to use tools and the soul has to use the body. So the analogy there is the soul is analogous to the art of carpentry, right? And the body is analogous to the flute, right? So I think it's right to say the art of carpentry doesn't have place or motion, right? It has to embelf in a flute, 
which does have place and I guess a flute doesn't have motion, but it you could be at least incidentally moved, but you could, you know, but it, the art itself is not a physical phenomenon, right? Like it's present. The art of carpentry is present in all objects created by a carpenter, but it is not any of them. It somehow is all of them and none of them. Yeah, I think he's just reminding us that the word soul is a very different type of word than the word arm or leg that we can't talk about soul and use the same kind of words like motion or place or alteration that we can use with the word soul because it leads us into these aporias. But that makes the idea that it can be incidentally moved kind of strange, right? Like if I pick up a flute and move it, am I incidentally moving the art of carpentry? I mean, if the art of carpentry is in the flute, yeah. Where is the carpentry? It's not in a tree, right? It's in the flute. <laughs> Not, you're not actually like moving it's, it's gonna be uh you're only the activity of the the carpenter right acting onto the flute or something i mean it's about activity ultimately but, but it, the uh, carpentry persists in the flute that's why the flute doesn't cease to be right the mm -hmm. carpenter makes the the and the art remains there right yeah and as long as the flute is a flute there's something of carpentry to it and I think the soul is exactly like that. Well, not exactly. I want to be careful when I say that. The soul is akin to that. You exhibit your soul, but if you change place, your soul didn't, didn't really change place either. Your soul is just there showing up wherever you are. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I read some more context to what Adam yeah, was talking I, about? Alex, you were thinking uh, the same right, thing. Right. I wondered about how Aristotle is using the example of carpentry and the flutes. Okay. So, I'm so start... were you thinking about random souls being clothed in any random body? Yeah, I was going to start just a couple lines above that. So I'm going to read Alex and I'll let you comment first and then I'll follow up. Um, so this is 407B20. So he's been generally in this last part of chapter three, he's absurd or he's, he's concerned with the absurdity Absurdity is about not considering the body when talking about the soul. So 407b20, but people put their effort into saying what sort of thing the soul is, well, they determine nothing further about the body that receives it. Just as though in the matter of the Pythagorean myths, any random soul were to be clothed in any random body. For, for while each body seems to have its own proper look and form, they talk as if one were to say that carpentry is transmigrated into flutes. But the art has to use tools. The art of carpentry has to use tools. And in the same way, the soul has to use the body. That's my interpolation in the same way. What, do, what are you noticing here, Alex? And then I'll probably have something to follow up. Right. I was just wondering if Aristotle meant the comment as carpentry and flutes being poor matches of art and object or art, art and tool because of his his mentioning of random souls being clothed in many in random bodies it seems like maybe aristotle is thinking that a soul has a, a particular match that it has to be with that body but also the the process of discovering more about the bodies that receive souls it seems to be sort of this process that i think i might have mentioned that aristotle maybe talked about in the ethics about trying to trying to draw a boundary right? that the way we can understand the thinghood of one thing or another that we're questioning after is to to draw boundaries and so i think part of the getting a, a clearer idea of the body will help us to draw that boundary to to narrow narrow down the choices when it comes to determining the thinghood of the soul. Alex, when you were talking about any random soul going in, into any random body, I mean, I think of the myth of Ur from the end of the Republic. And I mm. notice this language here, right? They talk as if one were to say that carpentry is transmigrated into flutes. And so what is the contention of the myth of Ur basically is that you have all these souls outside of bodies, I think, as I remember it, you have to look closely, right. but you have all these souls outside of bodies. And then, and then there's sort of this, all these bodies marching along and different souls choose to go into different bodies, right? So already the myth of Ur 
presumes a distinction that Aristotle wouldn't make. Mythiverse presuming that the soul can see and think and hear and talk without a body. And Aristotle says, no, 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 that's ridiculous. That's the first thing. But then the second thing along those lines that I think of is that Achilles has thumos. And it kind of seems ridiculous not to see that the sort of body he has fortifies or encourages or engenders the sort of thumos that his soul has. The fact that he's this big, strong warrior, right? One one of the enemies or one of the people, the schools of thought that Aristotle is taking aim at, I think, is the school of thought that says that you can think about the soul apart from the body. And if the soul is mainly a perceiving thing, right? The soul doesn't, you can't perceive without eyes, ears, nose, you know, touch, so on and so forth. That is what I think he's mostly getting at here is that problem though. And maybe this is just sex, very faithful translation. It's, it's hard to sort of get at what exactly he means in these last couple sentences, but that's kind of my modest contribution so far. Yeah. How closely the uh, soul and body are intertwined. That's what makes the, the method difficult to apply the drawing of boundaries that I think rather characterizes Aristotle and how he goes about trying to discover the truth by eliminating the impossibilities. I think that's right. I think also the example he gives is partly a refutation of motion because he's arguing that it's not like the soul transmigrates, which is leaves one body and goes to another, right? Which would imply that the soul has a type of motion. So I think he's choosing this example to exactly imply that carpentry and the soul don't jump from object to object, like leaving one and going to the next. Carpentry exhibits according to the tools without itself being moved into the object that it goes to or that it exhibits in, something like that. It's so, right, so the analogy at the very end, right? So as, as tools are to carpentry, so the body is to the soul. What does that mean? <laughs> as tools are to carpentry so the body is the soul so you can think about the techne of carpentry in an abstract way right but but any real world effect of carpentry is a result of these tools which act as a mediator for carpentry's entry into the world of things in the same way the soul remains an abstraction and maybe even an unhelpful one until you add things like brains and eyes and noses and fingers for tactile for touching. But it's like so a, on. it's like a, it's like intellect or something, you know, cause he says um, in the same way that if an old man received a young man's eyes, he'd still be able to see, right. If an old man received, it's, a it's young... not the soul. It's not the soul that's decaying. It's the eye being right. the point. Yeah. Right. The eye is decaying, not the eye not the ability to see he's separating that out or he, he's using the soul as an explanation for intention right like that's why it's important that it's a that's a techne that is the analogy it's like what is expressed in the flute through the art of carpentry is the through the tools of carpentry right the right right so, 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 so you right so you use the tools of carpentry the art of carpentry is the ability to use the tools of carpentry to, to conceive of a flute and then create a flute, right? And that is the a power that human bodies have that he wants to say is separate from the physical form. I mean, it adheres in the physical form, but it doesn't decay mm -hmm. with the with the form, right? It's so it's that's why it's really tricky to talk about because it's like it's. It is there, it is physical, it is in the body, it is with a particular yeah. body, it doesn't exist without a body, it doesn't exist without a brain, but it's also not completely those things. Right, which, some... which is interesting, like 2000 years later, we haven't gotten past this problem, and in a way, Aristotle's solution is as elegant as anything I know of that contemporary people have come up with at least phenomenologically speaking, as a description or something. Right, I mean, he asked, you know, he asked a very contemporary question of, of, you know, something like Democritus, where he wants to say, you know, the, the, the question is not 
about atoms, the atoms don't solve the problem. The, the question is like the source of motion. Then the fact the atoms are already in motion, that's just, you know, you just move the problem back a step where how do the atoms come to be in motion in the first place? That's what I'm trying to, that's the question I'm trying to answer. And then he yeah. wants to say, well, the atoms are, motion is inherent. The motion is the essence of the atoms or something, you know, but then. When, and the other thing that's brilliant about his account too, is he sort of, he doesn't use this language, but he's sort of, there are some thinkers who think, seem to think of the soul as a sort of inertia motion, right? A motion that's sort of unthinking. And it's just like this movement that moves things around. And he's like, no, 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 no. Whatever this soul thing is, there's decision involved because it both stops and starts. Right. Right. And if it was just something that sort of had this inertia that it was passing on to other things, you wouldn't experience animals with soul, right? Living things with soul above plants, sort of both starting and stopping in an intentional way. Right. And that, so in a way, and in a certain sense, I see that as a, a refutation of determinism in some way or, or, or sort of not, maybe not a refutation, but a challenge to it. And even plants have that, right? Like they will grow away from the light or they'll lose limbs and leaves if conditions of their survival are altered. And they'll just intentionally kill them, the parts of themselves that don't feed it. So almost something like sight is immortal, but your eyeballs are not. But then the problem is, is soul a single thing, right? Is it like sight itself? Right. Is it the ability in which case we would all have the same soul? I feel like sometimes he does talk like we all, there is a soul that is in some way that all living things are participating in the same soul or something. But other times it seems like he talks like each soul is, there's a particular soul for particulars, particular bodies. Can we read the paragraph at 408, A30, where he talks about movement of the soul more? I think that'll help us to continue fleshing out what we've been talking about. But I don't want to move there if we're not ready yet. It seems like we've sort of <laughs> said at least what we can say at this point about the, the carpentry analogy. So you're saying 408, A30, A30, yeah. where he starts with his conclusion about the, it's mm -hmm. impossible for the soul to be a harmony. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. the next like two paragraphs are quite interesting. Yeah, Could I too. look at some of the beginning of that? Since, you know, the the premise before the conclusion go ahead lead on, us out lead harmony. us alex yeah so yeah just the beginning of chapter four there's a certain other opinion that has been passed down about the soul not a bit less persuasive to many people than those that have been mentioned though it has had to answer charges as though before inspectors even in the writings that have become current among the public People say that the soul is some sort of harmony, for they assert that harmony is a blending and combining of contraries, and that the body is composed of contraries. And yet harmony is some ratio or putting together of things that have been mixed or joined, and the soul cannot be either of these. Also, causing motion does not belong to a harmony, but everybody, so to speak, assigns this most of all to soul. And it fits better to speak of harmony in relation to health and generally as belonging to bodily excellences rather than in relation to the soul. This is clearest if one tries to explain the experiences and acts of the soul by means of harmony, for it is difficult to make it fit. So he's saying that it's one of the things that people say about the soul, that it's some sort of harmony. They talk about it as a blending of contraries because the body is composed of contraries. Now, where Aristotle draws his, maybe some of the power of Aristotle's argument comes from this point about the body being composed of contraries, where it's just sort of like a superficial explanation about the body and its relation to soul. Perhaps part of the confusion where people want to say that the soul is a harmony comes from them not having investigated uh, what's important about the body, their claim about the, the body being made up of contraries. Say again your question, Alex. We... We were talking about just there uh, at the end of chapter three. They attached the soul to the body, set it into it, 
Uh, they determine no further what the cause of this is or what the condition of the body is. This would seem to be necessary. That I'm reading from that last paragraph of chapter three. So, yeah, we were talking about the relation of soul to the body and how the body's important to soul, like tools are to an artist. And so this claim about the soul being harmony because it's a blending of contraries, the body is composed of contraries. Well, perhaps the point about the body being composed of contraries needs to be interrogated further. And that is why that's something that Aristotle sees that he maybe doesn't speak directly. It's implicit in Aristotle's reputation of the point about harmony is perhaps something being missed in in uh, this premise about the body being composed of contraries. I took it to be slightly different about how, because I thought he was agreeing that the body is composed of contraries, just like basic elements that aren't reconciled. I thought it was something more like the ratio of contraries can never explain something like a soul. Like I thought it was like almost further refutation of atomism, right? Where it seemed to be very similar to like modern scientific psychological ideas of soul. If I aggregate up these atoms in a certain ratio, I can calculate a desired neurochemical effect. Right. Um, well, the, and the idea is right. A ratio of water, fire, earth, or whatever at a certain, if you get the ratios just right, then soul arises out of that. And that's what he takes issue with. Yeah, and, and even the the kind of more like, I mean, I don't know too much about like Gestalt psychology and all this stuff, but it seems like almost everyone's in agreement that something like that, where there's two basic camps, where there's like people who's like this is can be entirely mathematically determined, or people who say it can be mathematically determined in such a way that the whole is greater or in, in addition to a superstructure upon the parts. Yeah, but it seems like Aristotle's point is something uh, no amount of mathematical determination can ever arrive at what it is right i think the mentioning of the the ratio of elements is helpful in talking about soul being harmony say it was true that you mix the elements in a certain ratio and you got a soul congratulations you are <laughs> the proud parent of a soul uh, that you've made out of elements the harmony that is the condition for the appearance of said soul i don't think it adequately describes soul yeah i think that's the problem well, and part but, of that is is like i mean i think this is where it's helpful to use modern science as an example right so the properties of a soul are like endurance and proper recognition of something that it's not right in the realm of perceiving so a soul can know something that's not part of its harmony. Yeah, you that's know, the big, that's the rub. That's the difficult right, thing. Right, because psychologists talk about it as just, you know, mapping, like we, or like, you know, empirical people who don't think there's mind, right? Like, oh, you just map it out, you map it out, and that picture is inaccurate, and it's not the biggest deal. And the soul just keeps going. Where, where it's in Aristotle saying, like, there's, there's almost... No, there, there's actually no mapping involved. It's not a map the way the, the mind works. There's not a little universe inside my head. There's something about perception, which is going out and getting the other thing. Mm -hmm. And if I explain that internally, I can never reach that. Well, in the difficulty, so there, there's like this principle of, of like recognizes like. All the world is made out of earth, wind, fire, and water, or whatever. Therefore, my soul must be earth, wind, fire, and water. And therefore, my soul recognizes every, perceives everything around it. That's basically, I think, the argument the philosophers he's engaging with would make. Would make. And I think one way of thinking about it is that Aristotle wants to say, well, but there's also this power of distinguishing. So like, even if we grant that this lamp and this water bottle and this book and this person, you know, and so on and so forth are made of the four elements, the soul still has the power to instantly distinguish those four things and know them in a different way. And the presence of the four, or however many elements, doesn't matter, right? The presence of the elements doesn't serve to explain that specific power of distinguishing different combinations of the elements that phenomenologically are so, so very different, right? Does that make sense? Well, that's where in, in, intention is so important. Like even the, the motion of an animal 
is not because and this is i guess maybe this is why something like rivers don't have souls right they have all the requisite elements of the motion of an animal they have a source they have fuel they have material but they can't exhibit any like being towards the way an animal's motions are right animals aren't just like coherent sense of traceable motions they have i don't want to call it you know it's certainly not reason or it's not recognition in a in an intellectual sense but it is recognition in, in some kind of animating sense and, and plants are the same the, the way that they grow is and somehow a, a recognition of the environment rather than reliant on something like material forces yeah it seems like they have memory is that right i think i thought one of the strangest things when we started talking about recollection and memory but you could think of plants and animals as having a kind of memory too well that thing about memory is in this paragraph that i wanted to read and i thought it was super interesting as well can i can i start there and we'll circle back around to memory and and sense perception at the end one thing i did want to say real quick i was when you're talking about harmony and the elements and all that right it's the same kind of he's making the same kind of argument that he was making with the atoms is that there's a there's a mystery that needs explaining and his all his predecessors have failed to adequately mm -hmm. get back to the source right they've all gone one step short of the source but the source is really the mystery that needs explaining that's what he's that's what he's trying to propose the soul as right does that seem fair mm -hmm. yeah and he always basically says if we commit to their account then we get in these certain difficulties and he's looking for the account and the difficulty is always a sort of the explanation comes up short it's all well right. and fine to a degree but if you push a, if you push on it a little bit you you realize you haven't answered the key you haven't addressed the key mystery of life or whatever right when he talks about the the uh, thinking of the mind is being broken up into points or something or being broken mm -hmm. into pieces, you know, and he wants to say, it doesn't, which piece is the thinking piece? <laughs> you know what I mean? Which part of the mind is the part that has the quality of mind that I'm trying to talk about? That's the question I've tried to investigate. Anyway, I just wanted to, mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting mm -hmm. feature of this, but yeah, go ahead and read you, read the passage. This is at 408A30. It is clear then from what has been said it's not possible for the soul to be a harmony, nor for it to be carried around in a circle. So we've just been talking about, um, by the way, as I'm reading, stop me at any point if you want to interrupt or comment. But it is possible for it to be moved incidentally, it being the soul, as we said, and even move itself in the sense that the body in which it is present moves while this body is moved by the soul. But in no other ways is it possible for it to be moved with respect place. So it can move with the body, but it doesn't move within the body. And in some sense, right? So if right, I see an object and that object appears desirable, right? My soul can cause my body to move. And then my body moving carries my soul towards that object. And that is a sort of movement, but it's the only sort of movement he wants. That's how I'm understanding those sentences I just read. But it is possible for it to be moved incidentally, as we have said, and even move itself in the sense that the body in which it is present moves while this body is moved by the soul, but in no other way is it possible for it to be moved with respect to place. But one might more reasonably raise the question about it as being moved by looking to things such as these. We say that the soul grieves or rejoices, is confident or afraid, and also is angry, as well as that it perceives and thinks things through. And all these things seem to be motions. They seem to be the motion of alteration of the four types. Hence, one might suppose that the soul is moved, but this is not necessarily so. For even if, as much as possible, grieving and rejoicing and thinking things through are motions, and with each of these something is being moved, still the being moved is by the soul. This is the big distinction he wants to make, right? So being angry, when you're angry, something is moved, and something is moved by the soul, and the implication, I think, is that the soul itself does not move. Mm -hmm. For example, being angry or afraid is the heart's being moved in a certain way. And thinking things through is perhaps something of this sort or else of some other part. Well, certain of these make some parts move in place and others make other parts change by altering in quality. Which ones and how is another story. Yet, 
This is the part that I did not totally understand. Yet to say that the soul gets angry, right? So moving back, he wants to say, when you get angry, your body is moved by the soul, let's say, right? And he wants to say, but if you say the soul itself gets angry, is as if someone were to say that the soul weaves cloth or builds a house. For it is better, perhaps, not to say that the soul pities or learns or thinks things through, but that the human being does these things by means of the soul. And this not in the sense that the motion is in the soul, but that it, the motion, sometimes goes up to the soul. This is sense perception. And sometimes comes from it. This is memory. For example, sense perception comes from these things here, but calling something back to memory goes from the soul to the motions or stopping places in the sense organ. And I think we should read the next paragraph too, but I'm going to stop there. Yeah, that part was the part that was most interesting was that the line that memory comes from the soul mm -hmm. and into the body. Right. It's kind of like the idea of like your mind's eye, right? He's taking it quite literally. Like if I remember something I saw 10 years ago, my soul is sending it up to my eyes. But that seems to imply that there is, that the soul, well, it's, is with a body that there is some part of the soul that is not with the body right and it's like a it's like storing these memories i don't know but there's some kind of conduit like a between a specific body and these memories that are stored in the, the more general soul do you guys remember when we read uh the bhagavad gita and one of the things we talked about was this idea of consciousness as it's presented in there it has no qualities at all it's just like a kind of like a space or something like an aware, like a very general, completely general, completely neutral awareness that is, has, yeah, has no attributes, has no qualities, and like a universal eye or something. But it's not, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was described, but I mean, it kind of made me think of that as, as, as just like just this very, yeah, general, neutral mm, dish that, <laughs> that, every, that this is all contained in and somehow is the ground of all these perceptions and intentions. And allows them to exist, but you know, isn't the same as any of them. I, I think that's pretty close. No. I would say it feels like the big difference with Aristotle is he's granting agency to soul, right? The soul goes out and does stuff, whereas the Bhagavad Gita feels like consciousness is ludicrously passive, right? It's this totally flat eternal plane mm -hmm. where the war is fought out. It seems like what Aristotle wants, and that's why the setting, the memory one is weird. I want to say something like the, the image is what appears to the body, but the soul sends the memory. And I, and I want to like distinguish that because it's like, it seems like the soul is something like Bhagavad Gita's consciousness and that the soul can't be altered. So all the alterations we associate with even something within our mind's eye have to be bodily, not soul, but the soul still enacts on us that one memory right mm -hmm. so the soul this is where i keep wanting to go something like the soul is attention itself where it's like i can go from one state and then immediately to another bottle both of them bodily states and there can't be any other explanation other than an internal thing to me that's my intention and the intention is lived out bodily so the intention is not like a secret separate because, you know, he's just completely avoiding the, the homunculus problem, right? The body within bodies within bodies. It's not like the soul is a contraption that the smaller contraption inside my head that controls the bigger contraption. But it's like the soul, all of a sudden my body shifts in a way that is completely inexplicable given the material. Therefore, there's an agent that doesn't have parts but is still acting on me yeah that's what i was trying to say before it's like a power right it's like a power that isn't there's no explanation for this power in the parts yeah i think so i think that makes sense to me and i'm going to try to pull it to the my main concern from this paragraph because he really is interested in saying Greg, you're talking about these interior changes that happen that can only be explained by an inner power, right? But he wants to say it's not that your soul is getting angry and then getting sad, right? It's that your body or you, your mind or something, 
is getting sad by means of the soul and then is getting happy by means of the soul. And to say otherwise, to sort of implicate the soul directly in these changes, in Aristotle's mind, is he seems to think it's ridiculous, but it's not clear, right? Mm-hmm. And then the analogy, which again, the analogy is, you know, right, right below 408 B10, yet to say that the soul gets angry, right? As opposed to the body gets angry by the soul, by the means of the soul. Yet to say that the soul gets angry is as if someone were to say that the soul weaves cloth or builds a house. So there's something about he's doing this balancing act of the soul is not corporeal, but it's in it's in interaction with the body in some real way. And it's somehow dependent or interdependent on the body to the degree that if we take away the body, the soul maybe completely loses any powers we ascribe to it. Yet to say that the soul is sort of directly engaging in anger. And he, when he thinks of anger, he thinks about heat, right? Your body heating up the way literally like your face getting red when you're angry, right? He says, no, 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 the soul doesn't have anything to do with that. It's one step removed from that. Does that seem right so far? I think it's very close. I just want to trace this a little bit. So the soul is absolutely the agent of anger, but it has no intention of particularities of anger. I almost well, want to say the, like the, soul, the, soul, the soul itself doesn't get hot. No, say, no. Obviously. And, and it seems like the soul doesn't even seek anger for you or doesn't give you the parts of anger. But it, I almost want to say like the soul is this deep unity almost acting for itself. It's, it's doing its soul thing. But because it's doing that in a particular body, it's going to go through a whole diversity of exercises even though it's because it's such an abstract thing in a particular body. I think I'm inclined to do this because I think that Aristotle's not going to attribute any something, anything like free will to the soul, even though the soul itself will be something very much like intention because the, like, so I was thinking that the memory thing or the anger thing, right? It seems like the soul is the agent of memories and angers without it being involved in any of the particularities of this. I think we can map it out even a little bit more schematically. And he would say something like, so the soul, right? The soul is the agent of memory and perception, right? Perceptions go through the soul, in through the soul to the body, right? Memories come from, from the soul to the body. And then whether you're grieving or rejoice. So when what gets hard is that then I have to sort of think of a self separate from the soul. And this is, I'm just going to talk it out and tell me if this makes sense. But he seems to be saying, okay, so either the soul will deliver, it's a means, right? It will deliver sense perception to the self, let's say, or, or to my mind or something, to my body. Or it will deliver memories from it to the body. And then those sense perceptions or those memories make me angry, grieving, sad, happy, rejoicing thinking things through whatever, right? And the soul is just delivering the sort of fodder that allows for these changes in the body. And it's not even directing the changes, but the content of the perception or the memory, which the soul is delivering is the thing that makes me angry or sad or whatever. But if he does, if that's right, if that's a right account, then at the very least, his understanding of soul is radically sort of reduced from the the soul in the sense that like say the romantics are thinking about it or something i don't know though i think the activity is also really important there's something about activity in the soul that is left out there it's not just a, a means of delivering a perception it's like we know this we can see something about the soul through the kinds of activities that living things engage in and those activities are motivated by things like anger and sadness. Does that, see what I mean? That's why the analogy with the, the techne is so important. Because it's not as if the, the art of weaving weaves a shirt. Mm-hmm. But without the art of weaving, it would be impossible to weave a shirt, right? Well, so if we think about anger, right? So he wants to say... Being angry or afraid is the heart's being moved in a certain way. And somewhere else he talks about the anger being a sort of heat, right, around the heart. So in the same way that eyes are the tools for perception, right, or seeing, let's say, Mm -hmm. eyes are the tools for sight. 
-hmm. and ears are the tools for hearing, right? And just as the art of carpentry can only be expressed through the tools, so even though the soul has the power of sight in some sense, it can only be expressed through the tool of the eye. So anger can only be expressed through the heat that surrounds the heart or something like that, which becomes another sort of means or tool. Let me just read that last part again and, and tell me what you think of it. Um, yet to say the soul gets angry, this is 408B10. It is as if someone were to say the soul weaves cloths to build a house for it is better perhaps not to say that the soul pities or learns or thinks things through but that the human being does these things by means of the soul. And this not in the sense that the motion is in the soul, but that it, I guess being the motion, sometimes goes up to the soul and sometimes comes from it. For example, sense perception comes from these things here, but calling something back to memory goes from the soul to the motions or stopping places in the sense organs. So if you're recalling a sound you heard once, it would it would go to the ear in Aristotle's mind, I think. If you were calling something you saw, it'd go to the eye. Calling something you smell, it goes to the nose, so on. Um, I guess my big question is, what is the distinction he's trying to make there? Soul doesn't pity, but the human being pities by means of the soul. I mean, that, that's I, that's like a really serious problem we're still running into. Like the the it's because it, that's just metonymy, right? Like, like, I think some of these issues are grammatical that he's trying to clarify. So, right. So, you know, we'll say things like the hand, you know, my hand hurts or something, or um, my hand can't lift it. And it's like, that's not really what's going on. You can't lift it. You hurt, you know, you hurt in your hand or something like that. Uh, and then you're going to be really taken to like dramatic extremes. If you start to do this kind of metonymy because you'll start saying, say, saying things like, well, then the soul shits and the soul eats, you know, and all that stuff. Actually, the human of, being shits by means of the soul. Okay. Yeah, right. And that's <laughs> yeah. got to be true. You can't shit without a soul. Right. Uh, but <laughs> that is, that actually is true, I think. Yeah. Well, strictly, I, my you inclination. You can't have is... that organizing activity, right? There's no. <laughs> draw out the resources and reject the, the necessary parts. I don't know. My inclination is to like link it to, to contemporary thinking about my, like mind body problem. I know that's kind of where some of what we said points in that direction, but I, you know, I think with something like the, the soul doesn't pity, but the human being pities by means of the soul. To me, that's similar to saying, you know, brain state X it, which is the the neural image of my brain when I'm pitying someone is not the same thing as the experience of pity, right? But I feel like I'm that's maybe too anachronistic to read it that way. I'm not sure. He no, wants that's got to be literally the case because, like, that's so that's not anachronistic in the sense that like he Aristotle would even say similar things about your hands, right? Pity is a is a state in your hands as much as it is in your brain. Right, or your facial expressions is a state of pity. Mm -hmm. All those correlate to pity, but they're certainly not the soul pitying, right? There's an unlimited number of correlates you can draw to pity. Mm -hmm. And I think he is making that exact argument. Well, so reading from the end of that paragraph, just reading the beginning of the next one, and we don't need to read the whole thing. Okay, so he talks about, okay, so the human being doesn't, the soul doesn't pity, but the human being by the means of the soul pities. And talks about sense perception and memory being things going into the soul and coming out of the soul. And then he says, but the contemplative intellect seems to be within while being an independent thing and not to be destroyed. Um, and then he goes on to talk about, right, if the old person can't see well, it's not that the potentiality of, of sight that is in the soul is, is degenerating, but it's that the eye itself is degenerating with the new eye that person would be able to see, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. So it seems the thing, what I've sort of been hammering on this, this distinction, the reason I've been hammering on this distinction is it's not even clear to me what he's trying to save or why it's important to him. And it seems like this by distancing this, by creating one degree of removal between the soul and say these sort of ephemeral contingent emotional states, he's somehow preserving the independence of the soul, right? It's within 
the souls within while being an independent thing and it's not to be destroyed. It he's is trying just, to he's trying to not get involved in the absurdities of saying the soul has a physical being, right? That's mm-hmm. that's one thing. Seems like if you were to say, well, the soul pities and the soul gets angry and all of that, this that's the soul is becoming too physical for his liking, particularly because the Greeks seem to so associate pity and anger and all that with the the physiology of them, right? They don't they don't tend to abstract them. And so it seems like if he allows the soul to get too involved with something like anger or pity, he's it's it's becoming a physical thing, which then once it becomes a physical thing, it's also a contingent thing, right? It's losing its independence from matter in some way. It also loses its um, unity, right? So so at every moment you ought to be able to say that happened by the soul. Right. Like it has to be this perfect agent. And so if the soul undergoes alteration, it loses that simplicity and unity. We say that the soul grieves or rejoices. Hence, one might suppose that the soul is moved, but this is not necessarily so. So really at stake in this is the movement thing in under the guise of alteration. And he wants to say, no, 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 no. The soul has a certain sort of unity and stability but it acts as a, a medium or a mediator. It plays a role in the human being becoming angry or pitying or sad or grieving or whatever. But the soul itself doesn't undergo this transformation. It just facilitates the transformation in the human being. There's a parallel with the grammatical I, right? So I think I shit, I die. But it seems like the grammatical I has this sense of like perseverance in a way that each of my activities does not, or like my identity, right? And I think he doesn't want to go to the identity because it's evident that my identity does not really, you know, that's just basically like fame after I'm dead. And I think that he, I mean, I think his whole project is there's two camps on the soul, you know, the materialist and the idealist, something akin to that. And he's really trying to thread the needle and he's trying to keep both. I think that's says, right. You can't, we can't seed the sense of an inner. We can't see the sense of an immortal. We can't see the sense of a simplistic and the materialists give that up. The problem with the idealists though, is they lose, they, they're, they're just pretending they're, you know, they're, they're fantasizing about souls in a way that they don't exist. Um, but, and it's ba- I mean, it's basically the, the right the academy at Athens drawing where where Socrates is pointing out or Plato's pointing up and Aristotle's pointing down, right? The soul is not just in the world of forms; it's in this world. Yeah, well, I think he's pointing across there. I was I was doing that thing because yeah, I feel yeah. like that really gets the Aristotelian motion a little better. But uh, um, anyway, yes, you're right. Yeah. What can? Can we say, if we just want to be as simple as possible, can we say that the question is what separates living things from dead things? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the informal definition of soul. Right. It's what living things have that, that non-living things don't have, right? Yeah. It's going to run into problems you... when we get to reason, but until then, we're really good on that definition. How, how do you account for, yeah, how do you account for the, the quality of life? And, and somehow life, and he includes plant animal life in there, is defined by being able to move towards a goal, right? And intentionally stop. And you don't need reason for that. It's basically like opposition to collision physics, right? So a river just flows the exact sense that it's set up. But plants and animals have a kind of order of motion that can't be predicted from initial conditions. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they have that inner. What is that inner with a name for that soul? Right. What does it amount to? Right. Right. It's not totally determined by the fusis. But it, but yeah, but so even though it's undetermined, I'm really hesitant to call it free because free has the connotations of modernity that it, you know, I could totally see Aristotle thinking of something like there's this immortal thing in us and we're all completely slaves to it. And it has a singular purpose and it acts in a way contrary to physical conditions, but not 
you know, it doesn't have whims. Like, I don't think he thinks there's any kind of freedom in whims or there's any kind of intention in something like whims. So at 410B, I kind of want to just bring this up. I think it's relevant. 410B, he kind of reveals one of his assumptions, I think, in a really clear way. He says, but it is impossible that anything should be more powerful than the soul and rule it. And more impossible still that anything should rule the intellect. For it is reasonable in accordance with nature that this comes first and is what governs. But they say that the elements are the primary beings. And so, right, his sort of very Greek, or at least very Platonic, Aristotelian sort of emphasis on mind and intellect. And he can't, he's very committed to the idea that intellect precedes intellect is primary and soul and which is somehow related to intellect is primary and it, it is eternal well it is something like eternal or non-contingent while all matter is contingent and that's not something he necessarily argues for exactly but he sort of it's becomes it comes as a as one of his uh axioms almost mm-hmm. I, I think that's right i i, I would say that there's the way I think his examples implied the techne precede the the results of the techne. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. But to, to... well, and the only or just real quickly, Greg. I mean, the the thing that's interesting interesting is that obviously this assumption is just so totally different than the assumption of your average twenty first century Westerner, right? Because like the big, if, if you were to say, I'm reading a book on the soul. The big question that everyone would ask if you were to take a do a sort of a man on the street thing or something, they'd say, well, I don't want to know if the soul is immortal or if it exists at all, or does it, you know, does it last forever? That sort of stuff. And he's kind of taking all that, not exactly for granted, but those are like really not where, where he's really finding the tension exactly. Yeah, no, I was just going to say to that, I think part of the priority of, of news has something to do with like the priority of differentiation it seems like mind is everywhere because the world exhibits as actually different things. And the thing that knows differentiation is mind or the thing that knows this is a that not a that. And so if there are real differences in things that makes mind something far outside of the realm of, of being a human being, you say that last part again, Greg. Yeah, I was going to say. In a different so way. If 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 there are, if if the world is actually differentiated, right, and the things as they actually are, they're different, and mind is the thing that knows differentiation, then it seems like differentiation or mind is far beyond being a human, right? Mind is actually in the way that things are, if they are according to their own beings and not just like a cosmic soup. Now that's really interesting because it's similar in a way to Kant, right? Because you're thinking that in order to, there has to be something in us that maps on to something in reality outside of us in order for us to perceive reality as a differentiated set of things that we can interact with. But it's not quite the same, right? It's that the order of differentiation is something that we are within, but it like precedes and grounds our existence, right? So it's like outside of us, we're inside of it rather than it being part of our cognitive architecture that aligns with the external world in some way. Yeah, exactly. I think it's exactly like that. Like there's no mapping in Aristotle. We don't have to pretend to get the outside world. The world is is minded mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we go out and find the mindedness of the world as it actually is. Whereas Kant, right, you're trapped inside your own mind forever and you just work as far out as you possibly can, but mm-hmm. you never stop reaching towards the, the limits of your own mind. And all, all of that sort of follows from the primacy of news is what you were saying, just to bring it sort of first full circle, Greg. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's unavoidable, right? Like the, for, for Khan expresses it as the I think is attachable to every single experience, 
right? I think that I see a green plant. I think that I'm holding onto this. But for Aristotle, it's, it's really not the I that thinks. He really depersonalizes that, which is why he's so persnickety about soul. Is it's the, and it's why he doesn't do the whole modern thing where he just brings in the eye everywhere and makes it so subjective. He just really doesn't think it's so much the eye that thinks as much as like there is thinking. And oh, as yeah, a human being, uh, I belong to that. It's just like, that's what Nietzsche said, right? I think therefore I am, just doesn't follow. I think therefore thinking is. Good, good, good. I think we've actually done a pretty good job of thinking through the ways, the soul, the reasons, the account, Aristotle's account of why the soul doesn't move. I actually feel like we've articulated the major planks pretty well. Is there anything sort of, we didn't exactly talk about, uh, what was the other thing he wanted to talk about? Oh, we sort of talked about whether the soul is composed of elements or not, but I don't think that that really needs yeah, this thorough retreatment. Yeah, no, he doesn't take that very seriously anyway. I mean, he pretty much dismisses it out of hand. I got my dog inside again. So to sum up, right, the four types of movement change from place to place. That's only incidental, but the soul is firmly placed within the body, the living body in some way. And the soul moves within the body, but this, but this, but it's kind of like white moving with the cup alteration. The soul is a means of alteration in the human, but it, it itself seems not to be altered in Aristotle's thinking. And then growth or corruption, the soul is not physical and therefore isn't subject to either growth or decay in the way that the human body or the plant body is. And the one that is least convincing to me is the alteration thing, though I think we work through his account as good as we can, at least at this point. But certainly the other three, I, I would say, okay, I'm with you, Aristotle. Previous philosophers were wrong. The soul doesn't move. For me personally, I, I need to think more about his account of alteration and, and before I can totally endorse that. But I, I think of at least, I see it more clearly than I did before we started, for sure. Is that a adequate summing up? Yeah, that sounds good. I think there, there are definitely other complications we could bring up, but I think that's enough for, for, one, for one podcast. <laughs> yeah, I did. I guess I really feel like it was, it was really hard for me to read this and not think about contemporary philosophy of mind debates. I try not to read too much of that back into it, but you know, it really feels like it's a lot of it's there. A lot of those questions are there already. And we kind of, jokingly said before we started recording that you know the the basic works of aristotle make aristotle sound like bertrand russell or something and the sax translation makes aristotle sound like heidegger but i do think you know heidegger is paying really careful attention to aristotle right and and a lot of heidegger's writing have, has really informed the philosophy of mind at least the philosophy of mind papers that i read when i was in in school so I mean, you can see that how aristotle became important to that conversation that's always amazing how much he has to say to <laughs> to our to contemporary concerns i think his trick is what he wasn't willing to let go of and i think that like in some ways that's what makes this work so able to be revisited right like it can be dogmatically written off for centuries but if he really wasn't letting go of something true then after the dogmatism's rubbed off, it will be rediscovered. And I think that's what this book's gone through. Like the mm -hmm. dogmatism of intense medieval Christianity, the dogmatism of intense material atheism, the dogmatism of, you know, computer analysis is, is striking at it. It's, yeah, it's interesting. There are these fads and the, the, the Aristotle's work sort of outlives them all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really deep point that, you know, it's not, harmony is not an explanation right it's like the, what we're seeking is the explanation for harmony yeah. mm -hmm. and that's much and movement is not the explanation we're looking for the explanation of for the, yeah the explanation of movement the sort the origin of movement mm -hmm. I, I think even the language of explanation is not right almost it's like we're trying to put forward that thing that we're all already aware of and looking out from that we just we just let get wrapped up in either language or other such confusions. 
I think I said this last week and I sort of said it today and it's probably at least attributable to the sex translation, but it is really, I'm really seeing in a new way, like how phenomenological Aristotle is, how like he really takes our, our, uh, to use a hackneyed phrase, right. Takes our lived experience really seriously and is not willing to come up with a theory that doesn't, he's not willing to come up with theory that's logically tidy, but doesn't, have explanatory power with regards to the way we experience the world. God, there was yeah. one point, Elijah, where you literally basically said the phenomenological motto. I forget, like you, you were just it was mm-hmm. quoting Aristotle and the, the like the thing you emphasized from it's like, oh my God, that is the motto. But again, Sachs's translation probably brings that out. But now that I'm thinking yeah. back to other Aristotle, it's like, oh, it's in all of it. He takes that really, and maybe like, you know, there's like, it actually requires a certain amount of courage and integrity to like take appearances seriously you're an intellectual right and not not get seduced by what not do not get seduced by what comes out of your mind even if it doesn't mm-hmm. match with experience or something yeah i think that's a it's a good place to end it there yeah yeah thank you for joining us in the key quixotic quest the quixotic quest quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies <laughs> see you again next week when uh, we what read. are we reading next week uh, we're going to continue reading on the soul. How much are we reading of on the soul next week? Let's see. What do you guys want to do? Book two. I uh, feel like I think so. three chapters seemed like a pretty good amount. That would be. Let's see. Oh, we should book two is pretty. Oh, that's like ten. That's like ten pages. Four chapters. It's twelve books. Book two is twelve books, right? So you want to divide it in three books of four. Yeah, let's do that. So next week we'll be reading books one through four of chapters one through four of book two of on the soul translated by joe Sachs, green lion press wonderful beautiful cover cover alone is worth the price of admission okay uh, it's a uh, a baboon on there i think yeah or maybe an orangutan i don't know oh it's those japanese monkeys that take baths it's know. literally the image of the soul that we're trying to get rid of the idea that there's this ghost behind the body like they literally put that on the cover of the book (laughs) uh anyway (laughs) thank you good night